This is the Unity Community of Central Oregon podcast. Thank you. Wow, that was an introduction. I think I'm just going to take you on the road with me. All right. Well, good morning. Um, I really want to thank you also for that beautiful... I'm sorry? Oh, away from the mouth. Okay. All right. I just want to thank you for that beautiful reading from the book. It's so compelling to hear it in 33 RPM rather than 78. (laughs) How's that for an obscure cultural reference? But really, it's just beautiful to hear it read so, so slowly. So thank you for that. Um, okay, so I'm also just thrilled to be here in person. <laughs> this is, um, uh, I had an engagement up here on Friday. This is my second in-person engagement in two years. <laughs> I am so happy to be back in presence with people. Just thrilling to me. Okay, so um, I'm gonna jump right in. Um, As Reverend Jane mentioned, one of the newspapers I used to work for was the Cincinnati Enquirer. And one of my favorite stories that I wrote in all the years that I was at that newspaper was a piece about the um, circus coming to town. This is Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus. And in a fit of journalistic zeal, and, um, and therefore short-sightedness. Uh, I let the animal trainer of Ringling Brothers convince me that riding bareback on an elephant at the head of the Barnum and Bailey Circus Parade through downtown would add color to my story. So contrary to my, uh, I don't know, jungle book fantasies about how you get up on an elephant, which is that you stand on the trunk and somehow you're airlifted. (laughs) The only way to actually get up on the elephant was to use a plain old aluminum ladder. And the only way to stay up there during the parade I was instructed was to hang on to the elephant's ears. Okay, so those of you who have ridden bareback on elephants, you probably know about this already. But elephant ears have a really unpleasant habit of flapping a lot. And uh, especially when they're hot, and it was high summer. And, and we're talking elephant ear flaps here. You know, this is, not, this is not like kitty cat twitching, all right? And so um, the only way to stay up there during the parade was to remain extremely flappable. Yeah, otherwise I would have been thrown and it was, you know, it was like 12 or 15 feet to the ground. Um, A concern that, to be honest, paled in comparison to my concern about how stupid I looked up there. (laughs) Because for one thing, I was wearing my business clothes. I mean, the, the animal trainer sprung this brilliant idea on me at the last second. So I'm wearing my business clothes and I'm hanging desperately onto this animal's ears and my pants are scrunched up above the knee and with the black socks it was just a fashion tragedy all the way around um but um and you have to picture i'm the first thing anybody saw in that parade 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure I did not capture the theme of the show. All right. Um, Ringling Brothers, the greatest show on earth. Pretty sure I captured another one on P.T. Barnum's famous themes. Uh, There's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> I think I got that one. But in looking back on that experience and on what I have learned since then about what is involved in following a calling, that experience has a lot in common with it in the sense that I was caught by surprise and carried off by something much bigger than me, <laughs> in that it was thrilling and nerve-wracking simultaneously, and in that the elephant couldn't have cared less. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I've discovered a kind of an unsettling truth. My soul does not seem to care what price I have to pay to follow my calls. Frankly, this seems like a design flaw to me. <laughs> um, far be it from, but you know, it seems like it ought to care, right? But my happiness, my security, my uh, vanity, my popularity don't seem to matter to it. It's not interested in whether I become rich and famous, I'm not interested in whether I live a comfortable life, not even really interested in whether people like me or not. Um, but what does seem to matter is hanging on to the elephant. That really does seem to matter. The willingness to go for the ride, the big ride, you know, the one that ensures that someday if my life happens to flash in front of my eyes, at the very least, it will hold my interest. <laughs> you know, that, that much at least, or that somebody else's life doesn't flash in front of my eyes like John Wayne or something, you know. Um, so, needless to say, there are multitudes of forces in this world and in our lives, I think, um, that advocate against following callings, all right? The voices of the status quo, all right? The voices of fear and insecurity, all right? The voices of anybody whose boat is likely to be rocked by you saying yes to your callings. And I think it's really fair to say callings are community property. They're community property, you know? Um, yes, you alone are called, but you're not the only one affected by how you choose to respond, really negatively or positively, all right? Um, but callings also have their own unique power, okay? Because I think um, my experience, as well as my observation, is that they emanate from the part of each one of us that knows what it knows. Knows what it knows. The part of each one of us that knows where other people leave off and where we begin. This can be very confusing when you're hearing all these voices from other people telling you what you should do with your life, but you have this singular voice going on also. And we know this place. Um, I... Uh, I have a friend in San Francisco who told me about an interaction she had one day with her five-year-old, Jenea, apparently wanted to do something mommy did not think advisable. Oh, excuse me. And she says to her, uh, Jenea, honey, I wouldn't do that if I were you. To which Jenea replied, <laughs> with absolute innocence and certainty, but mommy, 
you're not me. Five years old, we knew where that line was. Callings emanate from the part of us that knows the feel of integrity in our lives and the feel of its absence. You know, and I, 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 mean, I don't mean integrity as a moral issue. In this case, I mean it as a psychological issue, you know, being in integrity with yourself. All right. And it calls emanate from the part of us that knows what kinds of decisions it's going to take to, in a sense, make your own life literally come true. What kind of decisions it's going to take. All right. So I'm defining a call, in case you're wondering, broadly, secularly and pluralistically. All right. These are all the signs, all the signals, um, all the urgings and the promptings and sometimes the imperatives that come from deep inside your life that tell you what it's going to take to kind of stay true to true north. If not true to the developmental imperatives of your life, in other words, the fact that they change. See, I personally think that the great vocational question is not what should I do with my life or what do I want to be when I grow up? Or I do a lot of teaching in the college setting. Um, what major should I declare? <laughs> the great vocational question, in my opinion, is who am I? Who am I? As distinct from everybody else, the furry warmth of the herd. What is my true nature? And the thing is, who I am, who each one of us are, changes over time. And so I think will the callings that come through the being that's being called. Okay, so, and the kind of integrity, the kind of authenticity that I'm talking about when I refer to callings, I don't think is even something we need to go out and discover, go on a pilgrimage to figure out, as much as remember, remember, religion, both mean exactly the same thing. Religare in Latin, as in ligaments. Religare means to rebond. Following callings is a rebonding process in the deepest and highest sense, I think. All right. Um, so in other words, it's not, it's, it's something we have always known, perhaps, or knew once and then forgot. Knew once and then forgot. All right. So when I was researching the callings book, I ran across a college biology textbook and there was a passage in there that jumped out at me it described what happens in a fertilized human egg as it grows and develops and what it said is that really early on in this process these subtle little indentations appear in the round cell ball that begin the process of distinguishing you know, one side of you from the other, the head from the hindquarters. <laughs> A distinction that seems to be lost entirely on some people. <laughs> Even 40 years after they're fertilized. Um, but what, what the book said is that if at this point in the game, you were to take a single cell and mechanically move it from the head down to the hindquarters, what would happen is it would migrate right back up. And this is what the book said. It knows what it's supposed to become. And, you know, imagine how that would strike you if you were researching a book about authenticity. At a cellular level, we know what we're supposed to become, I think. 
individually as well as perhaps collectively, right? We know what we're supposed to become. In fact, anymore, when I hear people use this kind of language like, oh, I don't know, I feel it in my gut. I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my cells. Uh, um, I feel it in the very fiber of my being. Anymore, I think maybe they're talking literally. There's a guy that I included in the book who really captured this idea. He described a conversation he had with a seven-year-old daughter who came to him one day and um, asked him what he did at work. And he said, oh, well, honey, I work at the college and my job is to teach people how to draw. And he said, she looked back at him incredulous and said, Daddy, you mean they forget? <laughs> Imagine how this would strike a seven-year-old kid that you could possibly forget how to draw. It's like forgetting how to dream or something, you know? And I just love that. I just think that captures so much. Um, so uh, the fact is we do forget. We do forget, all right? And when I was interviewing people for the book, one of the things that jumped out at me repeatedly was how many of the people I spoke to told me that they had a practice of some kind in their life. And the whole point of it was to strike up a conversation with themselves. Okay, some kind of self-reflective practice. All right, ongoing, lifelong dialogue with the deep self. Okay, and nothing extravagant either. We're talking um, uh, daily journaling, dream interpretation, meditation, uh, for some people, therapy, counseling is a self-reflective practice, all right? Um, regular short retreats, regular intimate conversations about things that are close to the bone, close to the heart. Um, your participation in any kind of group whose members get together for the primary purpose of waking up. So men's groups, women's groups, um, spiritual groups, you know, uh, personal boards of advisors, even 12-step groups, right? So some kind of group like that. And um, one of the things these dialoguing practices can help you do is realize there's actually not just one calling in there. You know, there's not just one elephant. There's a whole herd of them, you know? I mean, how many of you have a sense that there, you have more than one calling pulling on you? It's really common and sometimes pulling you in very different directions too. Um, so, uh, yes, there are vocational calls, but there are also relationship calls, lifestyle calls, moral calls, service calls, the ones you got when you were 20, right? Assuming you got them really different than the ones you're getting at 50, right? 75, there's a, there's that developmental arc again. So there's something about staying in conversation to realize how the changes happen over time. All right. And in fact, I've seen this happen in my line of work a lot. Um, people wait and wait and wait for the great big calling. You know, the, I don't know, vocational burning bush, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and miss all the smaller ones that are right at, right at their feet. Right. The signs, the signals, the promptings I was talking about. They're everywhere. These are the fire drills for the bigger ones, in my opinion. 
right? Poet by the name of Wallace Stevens said, I don't ask for the full ringing of the bell. I don't ask for a clap of thunder. Scrawny cry will do. I love that. To me, that is the beating heart of how callings come to us, is the scrawny cries approach. And I think it pays to sort of post centuries at the various gates to get them while they come through so we don't just miss them, all right? Because callings come in a really impressive variety of forms, really impressive. They come as uh, intuition, an intuition from what I can tell is almost clinically like a little calling. It's got all the earmarks of a calling, right? Um, passions, gifts, dreams, dreams that tell you what you really know about something. That is a calling. All the religions of the world, from what I can tell, um, believe that dreams are one of the primary channels through which the gods and the goddesses have historically spoken to the mortals. Okay. Um, you know the name, uh, the author Tom Robbins? Yeah, another roadside attraction, even cowgirls get the blues, all these fabulous, strange books. He says, um, dreams don't come true. They are true. When we talk about our dreams coming true, we're talking about our ambitions. That's a very different matter. Okay, and there was an incredible study I ran across 12 years ago, I saw it in Time magazine out of Johns Hopkins University that I thought corroborated that. It was a study of pregnant women, and they found that of the women in the study who had an intuition about the gender of their baby, they were correct 71% of the time, which I thought was impressive, just all by itself. Of the women who had a dream, about the gender of their baby, they were correct 100% of the time. 100%? What does that say? I mean, we've got access to very deep knowledge in there and we're sleeping through it. <laughs> you know? Um, so here are some others. Callings, and this is the level at which I encourage people to look at their calls and will, in fact, in the workshop this afternoon, um, calls come as things like song lyrics you can't get out of your head for a week. You know, anybody familiar with a novelist named Ann Tyler? Does that ring a bell? Uh, if you know her at all, it's probably because one of her books was made into a movie with William Hurt. It's called The Accidental Tourist. That's Ann Tyler. She's a brilliant observer of the dynamics between partners. She says, I can always tell what my husband is really thinking by the tunes that he absentmindedly hums in the car. So gentlemen, take note, because, you know, because um, I'm in the mood for love is really different than tied to the whipping post. All right, so, and the first time I noticed this little dynamic in my life, I was about to make an impulsive career decision, quit a job out of frustration at a newspaper. And for a week, right around the period of time I was at the edge of the high diving board, ready to do this, I kept hearing one line from the Wizard of Oz all day and all night, if I only had a brain. <laughs> and I caught it and I realized, oh my God, I am not thinking this through. I'm not thinking it through. If I only had a brain, that's a calling. And that's the level at which I encourage people to catch this stuff. 
all right? They come as things like, I don't know, a conversation you overhear in a restaurant or something that so seems like it was almost directed at you somehow, that you were meant to overhear this, right? Or um, how about a decision that needs to be made in your life now, not backburnered another year? That's a calling. Some issue that's hanging over your head, in other words, waiting for resolution, all right? Uh, where is there friction in your life? Friction. It's like in the natural world. Friction occurs where changes are taking place, trying to take place. So where does head argue with heart? What is that little drama about? Where does passion rub up against security? All right. Where does walk not exactly match talk? Where do you fight with people? What are you fighting for? Friction is a place where callings kind of well up from the, the mantle under there. All right. Um, patterns that have established themselves in your life by now. These are calls in my experience. So you've like worn a footpath to and from and to and from some issue. Uh, lesson you've endlessly had to learn, kind of mistake you continually make, um, kind of partner you always attract, uh, getting fired again. Section of the bookstore, you always walk into first when you walk into a bookstore. There's something in there. There's some information in there. It's not just uh, random, whereas my niece says rando. It's like, you really need to like drop one letter to shorten that? Are you like that busy? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, they definitely grow out of the body. I have an entire chapter in the Callings book called The Language of the Body because the word symptom means a sign. That's the origin of the word. It means a sign of what? Okay. The word pathology means the logic of pain. What's the logic? I mean, even if it's psychologic, right? So there was a guy that I interviewed for that chapter. Uh, his name is Arnold Mindell. He's an Oregonian. Lives in, I think you pronounce it Yahats. Um, and he's a brilliant, he started something called process-oriented psychology. And he's a brilliant body-mind guy. He said in the interview, uh, he said, symptoms are usually dreams trying to come true. Okay, I'd never heard this before. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, yeah, you know, that actually mirrors the belief I've had for a, a, quite a while now, which is that talents and gifts, especially the big ones, become needs. They become needs that is to be expressed. And if those needs are not met, somewhere along the journey, they're going to turn into symptoms of one kind or another. It could be emotional symptoms like um, frustration or envy at other people's success or feeling out of whack with yourself or physical symptoms that just pretty much cover the waterfront. Okay, so symptoms as dreams trying to come true. A week after he said that, I got it. I totally got it because I I went to present at a writer's conference in Albuquerque. And after my presentation, I'm out in the lobby chatting with people and woman walks up to me, a complete stranger walks up to me out of the crowd and says, 
Uh, one of those things that people won't generally say to you unless they're pretty sure they're never going to see you again. <laughs> she just walked up to me and said, hey, you, you know why I'm so fat? Which is not a question you're supposed to answer. <laughs> and before I could really even just gather my wits, she answered it. She said, it's because I have so many stories inside of me I'm not writing down. And I just thought of Arnie Mendel's comment and I just got it. Dream in the body. Here was a woman, she knew her body was trying to tell her something. She knew her symptom in the sense that it was a sign, meant something, and she knew exactly what it meant. It was, in a sense, it was the mark of Jonah. It was the mark of Jonah. It was the evidence of her flight from a calling. And one, in this case, as she languaged it, that's pushing out from inside of me. You know, there is no science or philosophy I know of that could dispute a self-diagnosis with that kind of, delivered with that kind of certainty. I just found that absolutely fascinating and compelling. And here's the last thing, last little piece I want to share for the, for the moment. And that is that um, I believe callings ultimately set us up for service. That that is really the point, is service. It may not feel that way if you're called simply to be in the basement every Sunday painting. You, you're thinking, well, I don't know how that's service exactly, the world in its present shocking condition and all. But for one thing, um, service starting with ourselves, starting with ourselves, because uh, by saying yes to your calls, you are aligning with your gifts and your talents, and if you are of this mind, your divine purpose. You're aligning with it, and that is a thrill. I can vouch for this myself and the people that I've interviewed. It's a thrill, even when it's hard. It's a classic flow state. You're utterly absorbed, you're engaged, even when it's difficult. That's a flow state, all right? So starting with yourself, you also set up, by saying yes, you set up something like a gravitational field magnetic field, if you will, and it draws things to you. It serves you in the sense of drawing resources and contacts and opportunities and insights and instructional dreams and interest. Because I think humans are naturally interested in passion. It just gets their attention. Okay, so that happens. Another thing, just the mechanics of inspiring by example being what they are. Uh, I think that honoring your calls also serves the larger hive. Okay, for one thing, because saying yes to your own passions um, influences other people's reactions to that and the responses in their own, own life. It can inspire other people without you even being aware of it, just by you saying yes to your life. Okay, especially if you are in any position of leadership or stewardship. All right, meaning whether you are a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a minister, a manager, a coach, counselor, CEO, politician. I think, I think this much is certain. Your passion is critical to their engagement. I know this is why when I headed off to college, my father's advice to me was don't take courses 
take professors. Right? Wow, that was one of those things that people say to you that you never forget. All right? Also because enthusiasm means the God within. En theos, theos, the God within. By following your deepest enthusiasms, you are by definition following God, honoring God, expressing God. And I just find that fascinating. Frankly, I think spiritual practice in its entirety, of which callings are, I think, a vital part, but spiritual practice to me is the work of creating a bond with whatever's bigger than me. This could be God. It could also be community, right? Or the natural world, or just your own potential. I was out yesterday. I had a day between engagements. I went to sisters, and I stood with my mouth hanging open for five hours um, looking at the wilderness that you guys have in your backyard, front yard, side yard. <laughs> wow. So um, the, the rub is that you can't measure it. You can't measure the difference that you make by saying yes to your life. Um, you know, uh, this may sound strange to say, but I think the difference any one of our individual lives is going to make in terms of human history, or human evolution, or human consciousness, or human suffering, roughly equivalent to taking a stone and throwing it into a lake. However, science tells us that because that stone is now lying on the bottom, the level of the water had to have risen. Archimedes taught us that sitting in his bathtub, okay? The level of the water had to have risen. The rub is that you can't ever measure it. The lake's just too big. You can't measure it, you know? Um, and you have to take it entirely on faith that it matters, that you are here and doing your proverbial thing, uh, and that the level of the water will necessarily rise. Okay, so um, last little item. There is a reason, speaking of being a, a fellow student of myths, um, there's a reason why some of the world's great stories, abiding stories like uh, uh, Sleeping Beauty or King Arthur, or the story of the Grail King. There's a reason these myths and fairy tales speak to this idea that when the king sleeps, those around him also sleep, and the kingdom goes to sleep. When the queen sleeps, as in Sleeping Beauty, those around her also sleep, and the kingdom goes dormant. But when the king and the queen awaken in these stories, those around them also awaken, and the kingdom starts to flower. This is an idea that's embedded really deeply into the mythologies of the world, and therefore the philosophies, psychologies, and religions of the world. All right, because it pretty much preceded almost all of them. Right? And I think the point is our individual work is the work of the world. The small steps are the big picture. You know what I'm saying? When we awaken, we help the kingdom to awaken. I saw a bumper sticker a couple of years ago that said, maybe the hokey pokey is what it's all about. <laughs> sort of like that, you know. So in the spirit of um, helping the kingdom to awaken and really about person by person, I just want to say 
that the workshop this afternoon is a very hands-on opportunity. This is not lecture format. Hands-on opportunity to explore what is your life presently calling for from you, right? What wants to emerge? What wants to happen? All right? So, um, and you will join a community of fellow seekers in doing that, um, that work. So I hope you'll come. And uh, thank you so much, Reverend Jane. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Sylvia, for all your support and help. And thank you guys for inviting me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.